0: You're listening to The Central Cast, recorded each week in front of a live audience in Glendale, California. All right. As Max said earlier, um, or as Bob said, we are finishing our series on black theology this month it being at black history month we're doing a series here at central called black theology month where over the last four sundays we've looked at different influential black theologians black writers black thinkers both men and women i know that ashley Roke was here Ashley hankst i should say was here uh, last week and she did a great job uh sharing perspectives specifically from uh black women theologians But today I want to finish by looking at the theology and the influence of Martin Luther King Jr. and Frederick Douglass and how, despite working in separate centuries, their work actually, I think, intersects and influences us today. And so let's begin with looking at Dr. King. When people think about or look at the work of Dr. King and his theology, um, I think the first thing they're drawn to is how his theology influenced his activism. Uh, Most are immediately drawn to his reading of the Gospels and his understanding of Jesus' teachings on nonviolence. There's no question that Dr. King's practice of nonviolent resistance was deeply informed, particularly by two things. The Sermon on the Mount and Jesus' crucifixion, Jesus' sufferings. In the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter five, we find Jesus teaching us, of course, to love our enemies and not return violence with violence, hate with hate, insult with insult. Likewise, um, in the crucifixion, we find in the crucifixion story, we find Jesus even praying for his for his enemies while they are crucifying him. We're told Jesus prayed from the cross, "Father, forgive them." for they know not what they do. These ideas deeply influenced Dr. King and they became the core of his strategy of fighting against racial injustice. But to be clear, Dr. King didn't believe and strategize and live this way simply because he thought it was good theology. Didn't do it just because he believed this is what the Bible says and this is what Jesus said. I don't think that's what really convinced him to practice nonviolent resistance. Rather, I think what really convinced him was the pragmatism of it. He believed nonviolent resistance was the best way, and perhaps the only way, to break the cycle of violence and hate that dominated race relations in the United States at that time. In other words, Dr. King believed that by meeting violence with violence and hate with hate, The cycle of violence will just continue, continue to crush countless people under its wheels. Nothing will get solved if the cycle of violence and hate continues. Therefore, he believed the best way and perhaps the only way to break the cycle is by meeting violence with nonviolent resistance and ostensibly hate with love. So again, he wasn't just trying to be a good Christian, but he was trying to be pragmatic and adopt the best strategy for sol- for solving some of our deepest societal problems. And we all know, you know, history has proven him right. Uh, his strategy, his path of love and nonviolent resistance worked, which I think is a testament not just to the brilliance and the foresight of Dr. King, but... How brilliant, timeless, and shall we say divinely inspired the teachings and the life example of Jesus of Nazareth really were. But to be clear, Dr. King got his commitment to nonviolent resistance, not just from Jesus, not just from his Christian upbringing, not just from his reading of the text, but also from Mahatma Gandhi. A lot of people don't know that. He was deeply influenced by Gandhi. He actually thought of Gandhi as being a spiritual paragon and divinely inspired himself, despite the fact that Gandhi was, of course, Hindu and not Christian. But nevertheless, Dr. King was a Christian and a Baptist minister, first and foremost. He was really a clergyman. That was where his heart was at. He was very clear about that. He didn't see himself as simply a writer or an activist and an abolitionist. Yes, he was those things. But first and foremost, he saw himself as a pastor. A pastor in the American Baptist Church. That's how he looked. He was a clergyman. And that's where the majority of his inspiration came from. His Christian roots, his his Baptist roots, the Bible. Cornel West, uh, who is a modern, well-known black philosopher, uh, writer, public intellectual, and a Christian, actually. A lot of people don't know that. Cornel West is an avowed Christian, very outspoken about it. Uh, He said this about Dr. King's theology, and this should be up on the screen. Ah, beautiful timing, sir. (laughs) The American dream is individualistic. King's dream was collective. The American dream says, I can engage in upward mobility and live the good life. King's dream was fundamentally Christian. His commitment to radical love had everything to do with his commitment to Jesus of Nazareth. And his dream had everything to do with community, with a we consciousness that included poor and working people around the world, not just black people, end quote. So that was the heart of Dr. King's uh, theology of love and nonviolence. It wasn't individualistic, but collective. It was based on radical love and mutuality, which are ideas central to the Christian faith. But in order to get a full picture of Dr. King, I think we have to understand that his progressive politics were tied, I think, to his progressive theology. In other words, I think the main reason why Dr. King believed the gospel was primarily about love and justice and matters of this life and this world, as opposed to matters of heaven and and the next world and getting into heaven and supernatural things. I think the reason why Dr. King was convinced the gospel was about this life in this world rather than the next and about love and justice more than personal salvation is because even as early as his seminary days at Crozier Seminary in Pennsylvania, Dr. King rejected fundamentalism. He rejected conservative Christianity. He rejected fundamentalism. He was very clear about that. We know from his seminary papers, we actually have some of his seminary papers. I'm glad we don't, people can't see my seminary papers. Uh, we have his, some of his seminary papers. And we, of course, have lots of his correspondence, his letters, his journal entries. We know what he thought theologically. It's not a mystery. And he had serious doubts. Even as early as his seminary days at Crozier Seminary, he had serious doubts about the supernatural. He was not a biblical literist. He even said he believed the Bible was largely mythological. He didn't believe, for example, that John the Baptist ever met Jesus. He didn't believe in the virgin birth. He did even believe, it seems, Jesus was divine in a unique way or in a way that we are not. Dr. King once wrote this, and this should be up on the screen. The true significance of the divinity of Christ lies in the fact that his achievement is prophetic and promissory for every other person who is willing to submit their will to the will and the Spirit of God. End quote. What is he talking about? Dr. King King believed that anyone who submitted their will to the will and the Spirit of God, meaning anyone who lived a life committed to the godly virtues of love and justice and liberation as Jesus of Nazareth did, such a person was as divine as he was. And to be clear, this idea actually has been in the church since, in, since its inception. This understanding of Christ's divinity has been around for 2,000 years. This was not really a modern idea Dr. King was expressing. This wasn't his original idea. This was actually an early Christian idea that has since been labeled unorthodox and heretical, of course, uh, after the Christological controversies in the third and fourth century AD, this idea became more or less heretical. With the creation of the Nicene Creed, uh, this idea was stamped out, this idea that we are just as divine as Christ. Jesus was really a human being that was divinely inspired, but nevertheless was a human, just a human being, That idea was completely eradicated. Well, it was deemed heresy by the Nicene Creed and the bishops of the fourth century. The Nicene Creed was largely created to clear up this confusion about Christ's divinity. The Nicene Creed was created to say Jesus was fully God and fully divine in ways that we are not. But again, Dr. King's theology here was not originally unchristian or heretical. There were many different understandings of Jesus's divinity floating around the early church. And Dr. King's view was one of them. But when he said and wrote these things in the middle of the 20th century, in what was then conservative America, conservative Christian America, his point of view was considered heretical and unorthodox, Liberal Christians, though, they loved him for it. I mean, this is just liberal Christianity 101. I mean, classic. He, Dr. King was really expressing just normal liberal Christianity when he said these things, or what we would call today, you know, progressive Christianity, or what's labeled, you know, woke Marxist progressive Christians. And even, you know, evangelicals today, if they knew this about him, and a lot of them don't, if they really knew this about him, they would want nothing to do with him. They, would comp- they wouldn't appropriate him, really. They want nothing to do with him. So I think, I might be wrong about this, but I think Dr. King believed that fundamentalism was completely at odds with the gospel. In other words, I think the reason why he rejected fundamentalism wasn't just because he saw it as unsophisticated, anti scientific, naive nonsense. And he did think that, apparently. But I think he rejected fundamentalism because it was a distraction from what he believed the gospel was really about. Love, justice, and liberation. I think he believed that fundamentalism and its tedious debates about the historicity of the Bible stories and its tedious debates about biblical inerrancy and apologetics and defending creationism and defeating evolution, all these debates. I think Dr. King saw all of that as a distraction from what the gospel was really about. Love, justice, and liberation of the oppressed. And for this reason, Dr. King, like James Cone and James Baldwin, who we've also looked at this month, Dr. King believed, I think, that if God and religion couldn't be a force for liberation and justice in the world, then maybe it's time we got rid of God and religion. I think Dr. King felt if God and religion couldn't be a force for liberation and justice in the world, then they were useless and irrelevant and perhaps even harmful. To this end, Dr. King once said this, and this will be up on the screen. Any religion that professes to be concerned about the the souls of men and is not concerned about the slums that damn them, the economic conditions that strangle them, and the social conditions that cripple them is a spiritually morbid religion awaiting burial. And I think you can easily switch out the word religion there for God. In other words, I think Dr. King was saying any God that professes to be concerned about the souls of men and is not concerned about the, sh- the slums that damn them, the economic conditions that strangle them, and the social conditions that cripple them is a spiritually morbid God awaiting burial. And this is where his work really intersects, in my opinion, with that of countless other Black theologians and thinkers and writers over the years, not just Cone and Baldwin, but also Frederick Douglass, who, of course, lived and worked a century before, almost a century prior to Dr. King. And Douglass wasn't so much a theologian per se, but he was a writer, he was an orator, he was an abolitionist, he was a statesman. And yet, Douglas often commented on faith and religion out of pure necessity. How could you not comment on faith and religion when you're an abolitionist? And when he did so, he was absolutely brilliant and insightful. For example, Douglas wrote this. False religion regards itself simply as a form of worship, an empty ceremony, and not a vital principle requiring requiring active benevolence, justice, love, and goodwill towards men. It esteems sacrifice above mercy, psalm singing above right doing, solemn meetings above practical righteousness, a worship that can be conducted by persons who refuse to give shelter to the houseless, to give bread to the hungry, clothing to the naked. Such a religion is a curse and not a blessing to mankind. The Bible addresses all such persons as scribes and Pharisees and hypocrites who pay the tithe, but have omitted weightier matters of the law, judgment, mercy, and faith, end quote. Douglas sounds a lot like Cone and and Baldwin and King here, or should I say they sound a lot like him because he, of course, preceded them by almost a century. But Douglas was perhaps the first black person to point out how an otherworldly understanding of the gospel, an otherworldly religion that values pietism over social justice, personal salvation, and eternal life in heaven, over the liberation of the oppressed on earth, such a religion is a false religion, such a gospel. Is a false gospel. Such a Christianity is a false Christianity. And it is so because it makes us devalue the plight of the poor and the powerless for the sake of glory on high. It functions as a distraction. It functions as an idol. It functions as an escape. And it functions as a religion that supports white supremacy. In other words, the reason why the white church, even today, and certainly back in Douglas's day too, believed the gospel was primarily about personal piety and personal salvation and getting into heaven when you die, is because that understanding allowed them to avoid a confrontation with the true focus of Christ's proclamation, which understandably made them feel uncomfortable the heart of Christ's proclamation, his good news, as it were, was good news for the poor and the powerless. And it was therefore bad news or a call to repentance, namely for the rich and the powerful, for those who have oppressed and exploited others because of their race, religion, gender, and class. That is not, <laughs> that is not a popular reading of the gospel in a lot of white churches and for obvious reasons. Douglas understood this. Frederick Douglass understood that. And he, and he may have been the first black public figure to point it out. And by doing so, he laid a foundation for all those who would come after him, like James Cone, like James Baldwin, like Dr. King and countless others. I'm reminded of a tweet today I saw just a couple of weeks ago from a contemporary black theologian named uh, Kyle J. Howard. And I'll finish with this today. I thought this was a really good example of how black theology is at work in our culture today. Mr. Howard was addressing the revival that has been, well, it's no longer taking place, but it was taking place for two weeks in Kentucky at Asbury University, a predominantly white evangelical university just south of Lexington. In Kentucky. This was a a revival that took, I'm sure, how many of you heard about this, by the way? I'm just curious. Okay, looks like at least half of you. So this was a revival taking place at a Christian university that went on for two weeks straight, 24-7 in their chapel with rotating music leaders and speakers, but 24-7 for two weeks, this revival was taking place. And it's happened there numerous times before. Actually, it wasn't so spontaneous as they'd like to claim, but it's, it sparked a national dialogue. This got a lot of media attention, a ton of media attention. Um, and so it sparked a national dialogue about what is a revival? What is a spiritual awakening? And so um, Mr. Howard had this to say about it. Any revival among white people, and again, Asbury is a predominantly white evangelical university, any revival among white people that doesn't bring with it a deep love for black people, a zeal to divest from white power, and a passion for social justice is not a revival. It's merely a faith-based euphoric experience, end quote. Mr. Howard is just channeling, channeling, channeling Frederick Douglass here. He's just summoning Frederick Douglass's spirit. And that of James Baldwin and James Cone and Martin Luther King Jr. And countless other Black theologians who have come before him. And again, I think his tweet serves as a powerful reminder today that Black theology is alive and well. And we can still learn a lot from it if we have ears to hear and eyes to see. And I pray we do. All right, so there's my talk for today. And uh, here at Central, for those of you who are new, at the end of every talk, sermon, homily, whatever you want to call it, we open it up for discussion uh, as part of what it means to be a spiritual community. We engage in dialogue if anybody wants to. Uh, and so yeah, I want to invite any comments, any questions, any points of disagreement uh, about anything that I talked about today or perhaps at any point in this series since today's the last day of this series. Uh, but yeah, any any questions, comments? and all of you who are online are invited to uh, unmute and
1: raise your voice that way. Yeah, Marcia.
0: That's a great question. (laughs) Marcia is asking, um, has anyone ever suggested how do we give up status? How do we, you know, practically work for unit or equality in these, you know, in these matters of race relations and whatnot. Yeah, that's a really, really good question. You know, I I think there's a variety of ways that we can do that. And depends on where what our social location is. You know, if we're an employer or something like that, um, there's different ways that we can practice equality and our hiring methods. Let's I'm just throwing out an example. Um, but I think, you know, pragmatically for a lot of us, I think. Showing up in support of our Black brothers and sisters on the streets during the protests, actually showing up and marching when those opportunities arrive. Um, there's different ways I think that we can um, show solidarity, um, financially giving towards um, specific, you know, programs that benefit people of color or that support Black artists, and these kinds of things um, are another great opportunity. But you know, anybody have any suggestions? Yeah, Anne.
2: Um, I remember a few years ago, and I I can't remember the article. I can't remember. I remember my takeaway from this article that I read that was about um, the difference between the way the white community sees the world and the way the black community sees the world. This is very generalized, obviously. But um, that we white people in America tend to have a very individualistic view of of the world. One of your quotes was even about that and how the black community takes a more community focused view of the world. And it was, oh, it was an explanation of the response to um, some uh, police violence against a black person. And this black person was theoretically like from a like just logical perspective in the wrong in some ways, but the violence that met him was was too extreme. And um, the white white people have a tendency in that situation to look at that and say, well, if this hadn't happened and they hadn't done this and they hadn't done that, then that wouldn't have happened. And the black community rallies And says this shouldn't have happened because they see that event as representative of all the events that have happened. So it's more of a collective view. And this is in response to your question, because I think we as white people tend to say, what can I do? What am I supposed to do? How do I give up any of my status? Like, I don't even literally know what that would mean, what that would look like. But I think if we took a more collective view, it would be about who do we vote for? What policies do we support? What movements do we support? Like, if we took a more collective view, then we would have more of an impact because individually, I can't just say, oh, I'm not going to have the privilege when I walk into a store of nobody assuming that I'm trying to steal something. I can't change that. But I can. Fight collectively against injustice, and I think that's to, to me that's a more um, productive way to address those things. May
3: I say something from? Yeah, hi, Corinne.
2: Yeah. Go
3: hello, ahead. hello, everybody. Thank you so much for this amazing, wonderful talk, as always. And all the congregation's thoughts. And I'm just so delighted to be there because it just always touches the the deep bottom of my heart, uh, the thoughts that I have too. And um, I have brought this up several times before and I, I have to bring it up again. It's about how we educate children is what we can change, where we can actually do something. We can come together as people. We can show up at even Glendale City, Paul, that's what I'm doing now. I'm going to the um, city council meetings and during oral communications, I brought up the um, request of we need nonviolent trauma-informed education um, everywhere. So we can show up or the city needs to show up to a vigil that we wanted to put on for um, the LGBTQ community for the black community in this case, in this month. Um, We need more um, government officials to show up in events that matter to our fellow human beings, that they need to be seen, heard and believed in their experience of life. And um, I speak from a point of I've experienced abuse and neglect in a white household, in a white home that was a Christian home, Christian and Catholic. And so I have a view of the world and my questions to Christ and God and about have been with me ever since I was a little kid. So to to kind of put this together, my work is with, I, I call it advocating for humanity. And now I call it organizing for humanity because it's even more of a doing things. We have to not only talk as white people, understanding the suffering of our, uh, black siblings, so to speak, our brothers and sisters, but we have to actually do things and organizing for humanity um, means that we can come together. And even at the church, you know, I start start uh, maybe at Brute Church or whenever you guys meet, how can we be active in in making clear that we want to stand for nonviolence and for truly understanding our humanity with everybody, and by this active work of being white, by by calling into our consciousness and um, through meeting with our black brothers and sisters and inviting them in and other everybody Armenians, it doesn't matter, not just the uh, you know visually white, but all our human brothers and sisters. When we come together and talk about how everyone experiences life from their perspective. And even within the black community, the big difference is there's a big difference between Beyonce and her husband, how they view the world and experience it to someone in South Central without the, the means or the talents in that way. So um, I'm trying to invite us to come together, start communications in, in, with, the, with the goal to come up with an education where everybody feels seen equally and to feel and matter equally.
0: Yeah, that's good. Thank you, Karin. I I think those are some really good suggestions. And I, I think the answer to the question, what can we do, kind of also starts in our circle of influence, just being um, an advocate for, um, you know, frankly, like, black rights and black lives in our own circle of influence is, is huge. Um, there's some simple things we can do in our own relationships, I think, too. And just frankly, having these conversations like we're having here this morning, and um, like the kind of work that Karin is, is talking about doing, um, showing up when the time is to show up and support, uh, you know, what's what the black community is already doing a lot of times, I think is is huge and not think you know, as take on any kind of like white savior mentality. Oh, we have to do something in order to save them, but we can come alongside them. I think is important. Yeah, Dorian.
4: So it's actually, I was just gonna tag off what you just said there at the end. Uh, I think there's that balance, right? That, that and I think it's a, hold on. <laughs> I think it's a hard balance, right? Because it's like you know, it, it's showing up, and it's it's it's, and it is you know, minority communities do need the assistance and the you know the vocalization from you know the "Quote unquote," more powerful, you know, majority, right? Or I don't know what the numbers technically majority. I don't know, uh, but um, but at the same time, I feel like there's it's a hard balance, and it's not an easy one to uh, to cut that you can gain just from reading or just from you know you know uh, um, getting a a theological or or edu- educational perspective, right? That you hear from that you hear somebody uh, you know sharing, right? I think it also comes from uh being being um uh, taking the initiative to in a way get to know people, right? And because I feel like the striking that balance between uh you need me to help and which in to a certain degree yeah, but it also we also don't want to cross that white savior line either, right? And I feel like that's a hard balance to do. And I, and I feel like just, you know, and it's great to be educated. I think it's great to read books and everything like that because then you gain another perspective. But, you know, it's kind of like people say you, you're not going to know what France looks like just by reading a book about France, right? So I feel like it's the intention and trying to find that balance is a bit of a journey. But I, I think if you're vulnerable enough to put yourself in that situation, I think hopefully most people, you know, get a bigger lens and a bigger scope of it.
0: good stuff yeah anybody else this morning yeah emily
1: i think that certain generations um think that racism is an opinion but it is not it is a fact um and then thinking that the experience as the american dream applies to everyone in this country um is Short-sighted and ignorant. Um, I'm speaking of people in my family who just, you know, and I, I I think that having the the religion belief that, you know, the the individualism, ideology um, negates the experience of other people in this country, which is, which perpetuates the thought that racism doesn't exist. If you can, if you believe that you, right, can give your power to a higher power because you don't have responsibility on this earth, that I think also, cause you like whoever said, it's like, we're giving our power up. We as like, okay, I'm trying to say like three different things. One is, I think it's irresponsible to give your power up and pretend that we all can't have divine intervention in our own little worlds, right? Um, I know I lost the other two, so that's not the point. Um, (laughs) I just think it's, oh, it's, it's very irresponsible to just have the religion, have the conservative fundamental religion and then just move on like my mom goes dancing five nights a week well she doesn't have to have any responsibility to an everyday experience and she doesn't meet people from other people from other cultures and other ethnicities to be able to hear that their response and experience in this country is different therefore she if she's never hearing it then she's constantly thinking and also that i think that there's never been Equity hasn't happened because of exactly that. White people have not a accepted the fact that racism still exists. Most of the most of them think that as soon as affirmative action and the civil rights movement happened and laws became laws, which don't always mean that people follow them. First of all, and it doesn't change thinking. That hopefully, with the education of younger generations and people in my generation and behind will come up and i hope that that is something that we can all move forward in doing and i think we'd all be more willing to look at ourselves and go what can we give up to make something more equal i think that's kind of the idea but if you don't believe it then you don't think you have something to give up and i think you just pretend that it doesn't exist what a
3: very good point so sorry i I try to be very short before the next
1: Sure,
3: session. yeah, go um, ahead, uh, real short, sure. Thank you. Um, so I, what I say is if people aren't born poor, policies make people poor. And that's really what it is. Policies, police, politics, it's all in that word. Is in this so-called, it's a, it's a word from a Greek polis, city. It's this idea that white people have struck, started to protect their property and or declare something as property so the poverty in itself is a an act of war against a human being to keep them in perpetuate um poverty thank you so i i will be quiet now and listen more (laughs) thank
0: you (laughs) good thought thank thank Mm -hmm. you yeah anybody else this morning well great conversation everybody and uh, I'm really glad we did this series um, starting next week um we're going to be doing a Lenten series here where uh, one of the things we're going to be talking about is uh Calvinism that's by request people wanted me to talk about Calvinism here on a Sunday morning um <laughs> uh, which I'm more than happy to do uh we can deconstruct Calvinism uh during during Lent um but we'll be focusing uh during the season of Lent on the themes not at right, I'd be focusing on Calvinism. That'll be one talk, maybe, but um, focusing specifically on the meaning of the crucifixion, um, the sufferings of Christ, because Lent is about identifying, um, sharing, in, uh, if we can do that in some way, some somehow sharing with Christ and his sufferings, identifying with the crucified Christ, and exploring um, what all of that The the, self-emptying of Christ, the the canonic act of emptying himself, becoming a slave, a servant, and unto death. Those are Lenten themes, um, and themes I deeply care about as somebody invested in a field called radical theology. So uh, we're going to get into that, um, and then we will uh, end Lent on Easter Sunday with a triumphant message of glory on high. Uh, I joke, I I laugh as I say that, Uh, but it will be an uplifting uh, sermon on Easter. Uh, But I'm going to depress you first uh, for for Lent and uh, make you not want to show up to church. No, I'm kidding. But uh, thanks for being here, everybody. And um, that concludes our time together today. Let us finish as we always do with our collective benediction. Let's say this together now. As we go from this place, we commit ourselves to the path of love honesty, and humility. We dedicate ourselves, as Christ did, to the cause of justice and the courageous embrace of this life, this world, and each other. Amen. Go in peace.